Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. My family and I have been attending Beacon for a few years, and we love how the pastors reason through the scriptures every Sunday. We love the fellowship, the kids' classes, the singing, and oh, the cafe is great. So if you're in the neighborhood, we'd love to meet you. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 10.30, or 12 noon. We're located at 65 East Williston Avenue in East Williston, New York. For more information, visit us at visitbeacon.com. See you soon. Good afternoon. There you go. So thank you guys so much for uh, coming out uh, to worship this morning. I am Robert Kelly. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And I'm just glad uh, that we are uh, here together, taking a few minutes to learn a little bit about God and uh, His Word. So what we're going to be focusing on this morning, we'll start by having us uh, think through why we do what we do. What's the motivation behind the decisions that you make? And it really will apply to all of the decisions that you make. You know, why do you go to work? You'll say, well, I got to pay the bills. Yeah, but go behind. Why do you have to pay the bills? You can just keep, keep pushing your, your motivation down, uh, the, the, the decisions you make until you get to the motivation. Say, well, I like, you know, to have electricity. That's why I like to pay the bills. You know, I like to go to work so I can pay the bills so I can have electricity. Well, why do you want to have electricity? Because I'm binge watching, you know, something on Netflix. And why do you binge watch something on Netflix? You see, you want to get to the motivation behind the decisions that we make. You know, why does, does one couple decide to have kids and another couple decide not to have kids? I mean, it's the, it's the same motivation behind those two seemingly very different decisions. You know, if you want to simplify it a little bit, ask yourself, why, did I, why do I pick chocolate over vanilla? You know, why, why when I went back to the coffee bar did I pick coffee over herbal tea? And you might say, well, it's because... It has caffeine, and I need it to stay awake while you drone on. But, you know, it could be something like that. But you see, there's a reason. You have a motivation behind the decisions that we make. You know, why would, he, why would a person choose a dog over a cat? I mean, like, besides the obvious, right? That, you know, cats will try to kill you in your sleep. But, like, you know, why would you do that? Like, you have, there's some motivation behind it. Why did you come to church this morning? Or why did the people who are streaming decide to stay home and stream today? You know, so there's a, there's a reason. What's the motivation? Every one of us is always relentlessly pursuing our maximum happiness. That's what I think the motivation is. Everyone is always pursuing their maximum happiness. In every decision that you make, in the moment that you make it, considering the circumstances that are around you, you decide because this decision will give you more happiness than the next decision. And you'd say, there's a lot of things that I've decided that, aren't, that don't make me happy. Well, that's true, but they will make you less sad. You picked it for a reason. You could say, yeah, but I've done a lot of things for the happiness of my kids. That is also true. Why do you do th- make decisions for the happiness of your kids? Because you ultimately take some d- 
delight or happiness out of it. Or at least you have tried to alleviate a whole lot of pain, which you understood to be the pursuit of your happiness. See, in every decision that we make, happiness is at the core of it. Now, it's a little bit odd because now you have to think through what does it mean for you that your primary motivation in life is to make yourself happy. <laughs> it doesn't sound quite right. It sounds just a little bit self-centered, actually, that everything you do is actually designed for your happiness. Now, throughout the rest of the, the, the morning here, the day, you'll think of all these different examples. You'll be like, no, no, this isn't done for my happiness. And then when you think about it for a little bit longer, you're going to see that at its core, there is a driving motivation for your own happiness. Now, let's bracket that for a moment and consider a different question. What is, your, what is the primary way that you relate to God? What's the primary way you relate to God? This is, this is to be some sort of a product of our upbringing and our religious heritage, what we learned about God, how we've experienced him over the years. It's, it's that kind of stuff. How do you, what's the, the primary way you relate? Some of you would say, well, it's, it's obligation. You know, I mean, we do the things that we have to do because that's what we're supposed to do, be, to, to be good and decent and religious people. And so I have to do these things. You know, we have a first Holy Communion class going on right now. And if you're anything like me, that's part of what you feel is a religious obligation. You've got to get your kids into a first Holy Communion so that they can learn about this, so they can receive the Lord's Supper, because that's part of what, what we do. There's an obligation in a sense. Some of you, it might actually be flat out fear. I, I relate to God through fear because I know that he is just waiting for an opportunity for me to screw up so he can smite me, because that's what God does. He's in the smiting business. And that's how you've grown up. That's what you understand to be the way that God interacts. Some of you think of it more like appeasement, maybe. You know, if God is happy with me, then there's like, he kind of governs karma. And, you know, if I make him happy, then over here, he'll make me happy. If I do this for him, which somehow puts a smile on his face, something he wants me to do, well, then he'll pay me back in some other way. There's this appeasement idea going on. You've got to think about how it is we relate to God. Now, our New City Catechism, which is an annual reading plan that we're working through over the course of the year, the question that we came to this week, question six, asks the question, how do we glorify God? How can we glorify God? And the answer helps bring these ideas together. We glorify God by enjoying him, loving him, trusting him, and by obeying his commands, wills, his, his will, commands, and law. We glorify God by enjoying him. That's the phrase that we're going to most focus on here this morning because it really isn't an intuitive idea. The glory of God, which we sort of don't even understand what that is, how does that inter, inter, uh, interrelate to us enjoying God? So that's, the, that's what we're going to look at using Psalm 16 as a jumping off point. Psalm 16. So if you could open up to Psalm 16, there are Bibles in the seats around you, or you can pull it up on an app or whatever. Psalm 16. Now we're going to start, you also have that little handout that we left on your seat, and uh, that is going to be a diagram, a diagram that we talk about as, the, as a model for spiritual transformation. It's a diagram that I want to walk us through here. We've been spending a lot of time sort of updating it, and it's an older diagram that we used 
many years ago, but we've updated it to reflect some of our newer and more nuanced thinking on these ideas. We're going to let you take that home as a way to kind of continue to think about it. But we're going to start at the center of that diagram asking, what does it mean to glorify God? So the purpose of humanity, according to the scriptures, is that we glorify God. But what does that even, what does that mean? What does that look like? It's kind of this nebulous idea. To glorify God simply means to make God's splendor, his power, his love, his beauty, to make God known to the world. Make it known and experienced by creation. As more and more people know and experience God for who he really is, God receives glory. Now, it's helpful to think of it in, in a different way, which is we don't add to God's glory, right? God is as glorious as he will ever be. He is as beautiful and as powerful and as loving as he will ever be. Nothing that we do will add to his glory. So what we're actually doing is we're pulling back the, the shade. We're pulling back the veil to reveal his glory to a creation that needs to experience his glory. So that's what we do. We're revealing the glory of God. It already exists, but we're revealing it. So then you ask, well, how do you reveal the glory of God? Well, you do that in a way similar to how you would do it with anything else. So you're, let's say you're out with the guys, you're hanging out, you're having a couple beers, and you're just conversation turns to your, your spouses. So what do you do? Oh, you're like, guys talking. It's like, oh, my wife, she's fantastic. I mean, she's been so great. She's a great mom, and I just really, I appreciate that so much about her, but she's really just a great friend to me, and, you know, we, like, hang out, and we look for opportunities to do stuff together, and, you know, she's, she's jumped into some of my hobbies so we could spend more time together, and, well, what are you doing here? You're, you're glorifying your wife. You're making her glory, her, her splendor, her beauty known to a larger audience. And we do this with everything that we love or enjoy. We talk about our kids. Oh my goodness, you should see my kids. They're doing so great. They're in this play at school and they're so talented and they're play one's playing the instrument and he's so fantastic at it. And the other one's he's in sports and he's gonna go all the way to states because you know he's the best at what he does. You're, you're, you're in, in the enjoyment of these, of these relationships, you're telling the world about it. You're bringing glory to your kids. You're revealing the glory of your kids. And we do it about everything. It might be your favorite TV show or some product, you know, some little gizmo that you've been into lately. You know, Conrad this morning, he was telling me about an app. He's like, you got to see this app. You got to, this is a great app. Why is he telling me about the app? Because he knows he likes the app. I'm probably going to like the app. And, you know, this is what you do. He's, he's glorifying the app. He's letting its glory be known to a broader audience. So we make God's we glory known in the same sort of a way. Out of the abundance of our affection, we will make God's glory known. So we make his glory known when we most fully enjoy him. And the more you enjoy him, the more you make his glory known. This is neat. John Piper, he's phrased it like this. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. The more you're satisfied, the more God's glory is revealed in you 
to creation. Psalm 16, verse 6. You can kind of hear now some of these ideas in the scriptures. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. You make known to me the path of life and you will fill, and you will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. So for the psalmist, life is pleasant. It's delightful. It makes him, him sing praises and to sing songs and to write poetry. There's life and there's joy and there's pleasure. You see, the psalmist is happy in God. He's enjoying God. And when he enjoys God, he reveals God's glory. In fact, we actually have a command to delight in God, which is sort of an interesting idea. Psalm 37, 4. It says, take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. It's a command. You need to do this. You need to delight yourself in the Lord. Philippians 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. See, this is interesting because I know I'm moving very, very quickly here, but this, these ideas I think are helpful for us. So, Many of us, the way we experience obedience to God is that if we have to do it because we have to obey because he's God and he's powerful. And because of that, when we obey, hopefully a byproduct of our obedience will be our happiness. But it's not inextricably tied. God can do whatever he wants. So I'm going to be obedient, hoping that as a byproduct, I get a little bit of happiness out of it. But this puts... Joy and delight in God, not as a byproduct of obedience, but it puts it at the very core of obedience. You actually cannot obey God without delighting in him. See, these verses, they, 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 blend, they, just, they, they smash them together so that they can't be taken apart. You actually must have delight in God. If you want to obey, if you want to journey with him, if you want to be a follower of Christ, you must delight yourself in him. It seems odd to command an emotion, but this is how the scriptures take it. Now, here's how this all kind of feeds together. This means now that the pursuit of our ultimate happiness, which is, of course, what we saw earlier, the main motivator for everything that we do anyway, that means that the pursuit of our ultimate happiness is essential. It's essential in our pursuit of our actual purpose here on earth, which is the glory of God. So that means that we, we can abandon ourselves to the pursuit of our own ultimate happiness. And when we do that, and only when we do that, will we actually be fulfilling our purpose here on earth? Now, this changes the way that we now get to relate to God. C.S. Lewis, in one of our favorite Lewis quotes, he captured it like this. He said, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. 
like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And this is what we see in Psalm 16, right? Look at verse 11 in Psalm 16 again. It says, you make known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Who doesn't want eternal pleasures from the hand of the almighty God? See, what Lewis and many others are saying is the reason isn't that we're, we're, we're supposed to, we're, we think we're supposed to pull back from our, our longings, from, from making ourselves happy. That feels self-centered. And, and Lewis is saying, no, you're just pursuing happiness in, in things that don't produce happiness. You're not, you're not desiring your happiness enough. If you were really going after your happiness, if you were really going after your delight, and if you were really going after it with abandon, it would completely change your experience of the presence of God, which will give us ultimate joy. So then we get to ask ourselves, if that's at the core of it, how then do we enjoy him? If we're gonna, we want to glorify him, we need to enjoy him in order to do that, how do we enjoy God? Starting on the outer ring, you'll see this image. Oh, no, that's not that. That's a different image. <laughs> Many of you know barley, of course, and um, next to barley is Pepper, the newest addition to the Kelly household. So that's our new little girl. And I show it to you uh, because she's so cute, and we just got her yesterday, and that's, that's why I have to show it to you, because she's just fantastic, because I set up the, I had them set up the slides. So there you go. There's the reason. So actually the real reason is the next one, the real pursuit is holiness because I really didn't have a reason. But holiness is the first of these pursuits. Growing up, I regularly heard God doesn't want you, God isn't interested in your happiness. God doesn't want to make you happy. He wants to make you holy. I grew up with that idea. Of course, the part I remembered was God doesn't want to make you happy. <laughs> that's the part that really kind of sunk into my heart. I'm like, oh, great. That's nice to know. The all-powerful, mighty being of the universe doesn't want me happy. I'm in trouble. But what he, what's going on here is something very different. So Matthew 5, 8, this is the Beatitudes, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed means happy. Pure in heart means holy. He's saying happy are the holy ones. See, to be happy in God requires holiness. Thomas Brooks, in a book called Holiness, The Only Way to Happiness, he said, holiness differs nothing from happiness but in name. Holiness is happiness in the bud, and happiness is holiness in the full. So you get a, you get a, a nice, beautiful, long stem rose all wrapped up in a bud for Valentine's Day, which is coming up, guys, so make a note. <laughs> so you get this bud, but the, but the bud, of course, is hard. Right? The, it's, it has its own beauty, but it isn't, it's not the beauty of the bud that's real, what you were really waiting for, right? It's when the bud opens up into the flower that you see the fullness of its beauty. But in and of itself, the bud, it, it contains all the beauty and the potential for all that beauty, but it's a little bit, it's a little hard, it's a little harsh. And holiness can often seem like that. When we think about holiness, we can often think of it as the way, you know, a whole set of rules and regulations and things we ought to do and ways we ought to live, and those things are, ugh. But you see, we got to begin to see in them that they are actually the bud that brings the flower. See, every relationship has rules. We all know this, right? Every single one. Your best friend and you have rules, stated or unstated, about how you ought to relate to each other. And if one of you violates those rules, 
the relationship suffers. So, you know, you're not supposed to talk trash about them behind their back, or you're not supposed to, you know, you're supposed to be accessible, you know, at, at all hours of the night, maybe. That's your rule of your friend. You know, you're always texting, and when I need you, I need you there. And if I call for you, I need you there. And you back and forth, you live. Marriage is the same thing. There are rules, spoken and unspoken, the way that we ought to relate together. And when you violate those rules, when there's a breach of the contract, so to speak, there's a, a, a loss of joy. There's hurt, there's heartache, there's betrayal. And when you experience that, and then suddenly you're like, wait, now things aren't as, I'm not as happy. Well, that's what, that's what holiness is about. It's the rules that govern the way that we can ultimately be happy in the relationship with God. And it's a perfectly normal and even healthy way of understanding how we relate to, to each other. The next is abiding. Abiding. Think of this as the experiential side of our relating to Christ. Many verses point to us. Our verse here in Psalm 1611 even says to me, you fill me with joy in your presence. Or Psalm 21, for example, surely you have granted him unending blessings and made him glad with the joy of your presence. See, this is getting away from the rule side of thing, but it's talking about the personal side of the relationship. And you could know about God's glory. You could read about God's glory. But if you haven't entered into his presence, you're missing out on some of the greatest delight that can come in your journey with God. You know, it's one thing for you to know that the Grand Canyon is spectacular. You can even gather up all your friends and you could sit in front of your big screen TV and watch pictures of the Grand Canyon. And that's great. It's spectacular. They're beautiful. It's odd if you did that with your friends. But it, it would be, you could imagine it, it would be a cool thing like to see all of these great pictures. But it's different from walking her trails and from spending the day exploring the, the crevices and going to the bottom and taking a, a donkey back up. or You know, this, it's an experience that's different and, and much, much better, much, much richer. That's what we talk about when we're talking about abiding. It's more than just knowing about God and it's more than just following rules. It's more than, it's about that personal side of the relationship. Then there's mission. In Isaiah 52, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes, burst into songs of joy together. So listen to that very missional idea there, right? He says, they proclaim peace, they bring good news, they bring good tidings, they proclaim salvation. This is a missional group. They're on mission for God to do those things in the world. And when they do those things, they erupt in joy. There is joy when you're on mission. One of my favorite verses, it's be familiar to some of you, Matthew 25. It says, his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things, I will put you in charge of many things. This is one of my life verses. I love this verse. I think it's just so exciting and rewarding in so many ways. And for years, I've missed how it ends. Come and share in your master's happiness. See, God is out on mission. He's fulfilling his purposes for the world. And when you join him on that mission, when you find your God-given mission in this world and you live it out, the joy of the Father overflows the bounds of his heart and into ours. 
That's why he can say to us, you can enter and come, share in the master's happiness. You'll experience the happiness of God, which will, of course, cause you to enjoy God, which, of course, in turn, glorifies God. And you can do that by living your life on mission. That's the inner circle, the three pursuits. And all of those pursuits, those three, will enable you to enhance your enjoyment of God. You could even stop and ask yourself, how come I don't enjoy God? Use those three pursuits and evaluate why you don't enjoy God. Because those three can be, they're, they're tools at our disposal to help us. Now you could say to me, yeah, but all right, how do I, how do I work on those three? <laughs> Maybe I'm not doing so well in those areas. How can I get, how can I enhance those three? We turn to the four mechanics very quickly. I'll have to fly through them, but there are four mechanisms by which we can strengthen those three pursuits. The spiritual disciplines are one of them. The spiritual disciplines, you know them, things like prayer, and here I have a list of the spiritual disciplines. Meditation, solitude, silence, prayer, fasting, worship, study, reading, memory, all these kinds of things. These are the spiritual disciplines, and those disciplines are not an end in themselves. Sometimes we, 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 we forget this. Sometimes we think, well, I have to pray. Praying is something I'm supposed to do. So it's an end in itself because I'm supposed to pray. No, you're praying to strengthen those inner three pursuits. You know, you may decide, let's say, for instance, you're wrestling with some sin. So you're struggling with holiness. So you decide to memorize some Bible verses to help you deal with your temptation. You're not memorizing the verses as an end in themselves. You're memorizing them so that you can beat back temptation, so that you can become more holy. You become more holy. You experience more of God's presence. You enjoy him. You glorify him. You see, you, you can now trace it all the way in, and you can do this from all of the outer rings and into the inner rings. You know, recently I'd felt like my soul was a little bit like fractured is the best way I can describe it. It sounds weird, but it was just it was disjointed in some way. I felt like I needed to go away for a few days and just do some thinking and some praying and some solitude. I just needed some quiet. And so I did. I got a little hermitage out east, and I spent a few days and a couple of nights just by myself reading and, and, and praying. I, I did solitude. I did uh, some meditation. I did some prayer. I mean, I'm going right down that list, right? Some reading and some study. But it wasn't in it to do those things. It was, it was so that I can experience the abiding presence of Christ again. I wanted to get back to a place of abiding with him. That's why I was doing it. Why? Because once I abide with him, my delight in him goes up, which means I'm glorifying him. Spiritual disciplines. Then there's significant relationships. Significant relationships. Hebrews 10.24 says, Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. I'm not talking about all your friendships here. I'm talking about Christ-centered Friendships. I'm talking about the kinds of folks who are in your life who will call you out when you need to be called out. You know, I'm talking about a friend who's got the, the right and the permission to say to you, hey, you know what, I noticed that lately when we went out to that restaurant and you were, work, you were dealing with the, you know, the, the waiter there and you were a real jerk. Like, what is that about? That's not who you want to be. I know that's not who you are. I know you have better hopes for yourself in Christ. Why are you doing that? And your friend now is sharpening you and helping you become holy 
helping you become a better version of Christ in this world. That's a Christ-centered relationship, and they're worth their weight in gold, and you guys ought to have lots and lots of these kind of friends. You have a group of friends who will challenge you on to your mission in Christ. This has been one of the most rewarding things of being a part of Beacon. It was a group of people who said, together, we're going to hold each other accountable, and we're going to work hard for the good of our communities, bringing the message of Christ, where we need significant relationships to release us into our mission. You see, these all begin to interrelate now. Then there's gospel repentance. And this is a curious one because it, we started when we first kind of formulated this. It was really about simply repentance. You know, so in, in the Christian life, we're often having to take off the old and put on the new, right? We're getting rid of the old man and we're, we're becoming something new in Christ. That's repentance. But the reason we talk about it as gospel repentance is because Sometimes repentance can be nothing more than behavior modification. Meaning we know what we ought to change and so we change it. And now we change it and we look better on the outside. But we actually haven't dealt with the core issue that got us to the place of doing the things that we were doing. Which means we're condemning ourselves to repeat the mistakes of the past. Gospel repentance says let's get at the deeper issues. Not, not just what appears to be the sin uh, on the outside, but let's get at the wrong beliefs, at the wrong thinking, at the, what we would call the deeper idols. Let's get at those things and figure out how they've impacted the way that we live. Because if we get at the deeper idols of our hearts, then we're not going to spend a whole lot of time worrying about all of the, the lesser idols because we're going after the main root. You go after the main root, now there can be significant change. And you do that by taking the gospel into it. What does Jesus have to say about this? What lies do I believe about God that are causing me to live in this way? Trevor's class on gospel fluency and George's class on uh, spiritual warfare, those are all dealing with these kinds of issues. How do we take gospel repentance into our daily lives? And then the, the last mechanism is life's circumstances. Life's circumstances. John Newton he uh, says that the early and the latter rain and the cheerful beams of the sun of righteousness are surely promised to ripen your souls for glory. But storms and frosts likewise are useful and seasonable in their places. Though we perhaps may think we could do better without them, both are needed to perfect our experience and to establish our faith. What he's saying is those great days of rain that you know, kind of refresh the parched land, those are great. Those are great life circumstances and they will do wonders for your soul. And so will the storms, and so will the hardships. Largely what we're talking about here is that no matter what you are going through, it's, it's not even that helpful to be thinking in terms of whether God made these things happen to you or not. In my experience, what's more helpful is to recognize that no matter what circumstance you find yourself in, no matter what pain you're feeling, no matter what heartache you're wrestling with, no matter what joys you're going through, what experiences of wonder are a part of what, what's happening right now, no matter what circumstance, God will use it to his glory. He will use it to his glory if you let him. If you participate with him, if you see his hand in these things and you see how they're going to drive you deeper into holiness or deeper into his presence, maybe you're going through a hard time right now and you're like, you know what? I've never prayed like, like I am right now. Well, that means your hard circumstance is helping you experience the abiding presence. When you abide with him, you're getting close to de delighting in him. When you delight in him, you glorify him. 
And you can give a hundred more examples of how all of these play together. Just to complete the diagram, though I don't want to talk about it, the overarching power is the Holy Spirit. To know that the Holy Spirit is around it and in it and through it. Because if you remove the power and the influence of the Holy Spirit, then any one of these could be utilized to your own glory instead of God's. You know, think about what we're doing here. We gather up a group of people and you all listen to me to tell you about God's word. Am I doing this for the glory of God or am I doing it for the glory of Robert? Am I doing it so people think highly of me? Am I doing it so, you know, I have a better reputation among my colleagues? Is it for my glory or is it for the glory of God? You see, in every step of the way, I've got to make sure that the spirit is leading me in all of these things because the same behaviors are present. But what drives me will shift whether or not I am dependent upon the power and the wisdom of the spirit in me. Sometimes you're conflicted. You go back to the spirit to try to purify those values. The Spirit has to play an essential role in all of this. So for each and every person here, our encouragement is to seek your full happiness, to seek your delight in God and know that in the, in the, in the very act of delighting yourself and pursuing your ultimate happiness, you will actually, actually be glorifying God in that process. Don't settle for the lesser distractions. Don't settle for the happiness that isn't really true joy. When you do that and you yield yourself to the power of the Spirit, your desires, your motives, motivations end up merging into one with your ultimate purpose in life. And you'll find true and deeper and lasting happiness than you ever thought possible. I'm going to be asking the band to come up because they're going to take us through a couple more songs and help us prepare our hearts for the Lord's table, our time of communion. And um, as the band is coming up, I just want us to reflect here during this time. You know, we, we often have so many distracting things going on in our minds and all that. And I'm, I'm saying put those distractions away for just a little bit as we seek to kind of uh, focus ourselves on, on Christ.